Okay, I got a question for you guys this morning. Do you know your family history? Do you know your heritage? Can you identify the generations that have come before you? And not just identify them by name, but do you know the stories with each of those generations? Well, for me in my life, I, I wasn't really interested in my family genealogy. I wasn't really interested in my family tree. My parents would tell me about our past and uh, just roll my eyes. Great, that sounds awesome. But beyond like my parents and my grandparents, I didn't know the generations that came before them. But something changed when my wife and I got pregnant with our first kiddo. I began to think more about the importance of a family tree. And then when we started wanting to uh, select a name for a child, I asked my parents, hey, can you give me our family tree? Can you give me a list of names that have been in our family? And so they gave me this list, and it was an incredible document that I read through. It was incredible to not only see the names on this list, but to understand the stories that became that came from this list. And so my dad's side, we, we hail from Germany, and my mom's side, we hail from Italy. And it kind of explains why I love bratwurst and pretzels and maybe even a little beer. But I also love lasagna and pizza and red wine. You better believe it. But more than uh, a list of names and more than an area that you come from, I found out that there was a Solomon in my family tree. And my, fam my wife and I, we had already selected Solomon as the first name for our first son. And uh, it, was, it was really cool to see that. But you can learn much about a family based on their history. And when we come to what is going to be our text here this morning in Matthew's Gospel, we find a genealogy. And we find a long list of names. And some of you maybe have read the first chapter of Matthew and walked through this genealogy and you're just like, what in the world is going on here? Why are all these names? And he fathered him and he fathered who? And I don't even know some of these people. Well, I think this is the perfect text for us to launch into our Advent series over the next four weeks. Now, some of you might be like, wait, what's so great about a list of names? Well, the genealogy, again, is not just a list of names, but rather it is a list of stories. And in fact, I think this genealogy that we have in the first chapter of Matthew is really the culmination of the Old Testament storyline with the coming of the Lord Jesus. And so, if you have your Bible, let's open it up to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be in the first 17 verses of Matthew. And for those of you who maybe are unfamiliar with the Scriptures, it's basically split up into two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is full of genealogies like the one that we have in our text this morning. There's actually over 40 genealogies in the Old Testament. And they were a big deal to the Israelites, a big deal to God's chosen people because it not only had implications for their inheritance, it had implications for their rights and their heritage. And many Israelites would commit these genealogies to memory, which is quite astonishing. But as we come to the New Testament, the New Testament starts out with four different stories about the life of Jesus. And they're all basically the same. They all share about Jesus' life and His ministry that began in the north in Galilee and as He came to the south. Each Gospel account, all four of these, spend a large chunk about His death on the cross, His confident and powerful resurrection, and His ascension to the Father. Now, what's really cool about the New Testament, though, is that each one, each one of these Gospel accounts are different. All four start out differently. Matthew starts with the genealogy. The Gospel of John starts out with this kind of poetic language that culminates and, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Mark doesn't start out with that because he's so immediately wanting to get to the next part. 
And then Luke, he starts out with kind of an apologetic on why his gospel can be trusted because he gathered it from eyewitnesses. But Matthew's, he gives us this great genealogy. And he's doing something here. He's making connections for us with Jesus' family history. And so, let us read our text. And if you will, please stand and I will read these first verses of our New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jokainah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mothan, and Mothan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. From the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is God's word for God's people. You may be seated. Okay, so again, a lot of names there. Could you imagine memorizing that whole thing? <laughs> Pretty remarkable. Okay, so again, we, we have this New Testament book here, the Gospel of Matthew. And while if you, you might see it in your Bible, I'd, I'd encourage you to keep your Bibles open. You might see it at the top, the Gospel according to Matthew. Uh, that actually wasn't included in the original, but it was come to be known throughout church history that Matthew authored this Gospel. Now, who is Matthew? Well, Matthew was one of Jesus' closest companions, one of his disciples. He was from the nation of Israel. He was a Jew. And Matthew... He was a bit of an outcast because he wasn't just a Jew, but rather he worked for the Romans and he was a tax collector that would tax the Jewish people. So he was an outcast and he wasn't liked. But Matthew met Jesus and his life was changed. And then he wanted to write down a written account of Jesus' life, but also his death and resurrection and ascension to the Father. So Matthew wrote this gospel specifically to the Jewish people. His audience was meant for the Israelites. And so that's why he starts with this genealogy. Because Israelites would be very familiar with many of the characters here in our text this morning. And Matthew, he has a unique design to his, to his genealogy here. And you might have seen it. There's somewhat of a summary statement there in verse 17, and he breaks this down into three sets of 14. Three sets of 14. He starts with Abraham, and he goes to David. David to the exile or the deportation of Babylon, and from there, the exile to the Christ. And it just begs the question, okay, what is he doing here? Why is he organizing it like this? Well, in verse 17, he says, so all the generations... 
is what he says. All the generations from Abraham to David. Well, that word all there is, is kind of peculiar. Because as I was studying this text this week, there's not, he's, he's left some generations out, which is kind of interesting. So I believe what he means by that word all is it's not every single generation, but all the ones that he decided to include here. Now it begs the question, okay, why? Why did he leave some out? Well, I believe he's trying to communicate something to us. And we see that there in verse 1. The book, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, we're going we're gonna to unpack these characters a little bit. Abraham, those of you who know him or remember him, he's a great father of Israel. The entire nation started from this man. He was the patriarch. He's the one who left his nation, Ur of the Chaldeans, kind of this modern-day Iraq, and he went into the land of Canaan, as God told him. Back then, he was known as Abram, and God shows him favor and gives him a promise. I have some verses for us up on the screen. So look with me at Genesis 12, 1 through 3. God gives him this great promise. He says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed, shall be blessed. Notice two things here. Hopefully we've got these highlighted. Notice first that he has, God has these I will statements. I've highlighted them for you. Look at what God says he will do. He says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. This wasn't Abram's job. This was God's job. And he promised this to Abram. But then he says, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And this is a unique theme that Matthew has throughout his entire gospel that I think is really being picked up here in the genealogy. He calls us back to math. He calls us back to Abraham because of the reality of the global implications of Jesus' life. You see, Abraham was blessed to be a blessing. And God set his plan forth right here at the beginning of our Bible in Genesis 12 to bless the earth through one man. Later, God would bring Abram out at night and he told him to look up at the stars. He said, try to count them if you can. Well, he couldn't. And he said, I will make your descendants as innumerable as the stars of the sky in the heaven. And Abraham, Abram at that time, took God at his word. He believed him. But what's really peculiar about that story in Genesis 15 is that Abram had a barren wife. Sarai could not have children. But Abram took God at his word that night, and he trusted him. And then we see in Genesis 17, verses 5-6, through six, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude. That's what Abraham means. A father of multitude, of nations. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And here's my main point for the morning we see that there is an expectant king that is to come. An expectant king. And as we continue to dive into the genealogy here, he comes by unexpected means. And he does that to reach the nations, to bring the gospel, the good news, into the nations. So we see all the way back in Genesis, as Matthew is trying to communicate something to us, his readers, that this has been God's plan that has been set forth. And so as the world would be blessed vicariously through Abraham, and as the nations would be multiplied from this one man, we will see that kingdoms will arise from this one man, Abraham. And not just that, but a king would eventually come. 
Now stick with me here, folks. Matthew has arranged his genealogy in a specific way for a specific purpose. He goes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And from there, he mentions Judah and his brothers. No doubt a reminder of the twelve tribes of Israel. But the tribe upon which the line would follow, this promise, this seed, this royal line, is not who you would think it would pass through. Because if you're familiar with the book of Genesis and how it ends, there's this great story of Joseph. And he's just this rock star. And God uses him in a mighty way amidst very difficult and bitter circumstances to save his people. But the line doesn't follow through Joseph. It follows through Judah. Look with me at Genesis 49, verse 10. Jacob blesses each of his sons. And he says to Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. I've highlighted some words there because that's kingdom language. Scepter, staff, tribute. The king that was to come was expected. And the Israelites thought that he had come when David hits the scene. Because to an Israelite, it's all about David. (laughs) Well, notice in our passage here this morning, Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, David is given this title, the king. There are definitely kings mentioned in this genealogy, but no one has the title other than David the king. And that's because the hope lies in David. Because of God's promise to him. I've got another slide for us. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13. After many generations and a king rises to the scene, he's being repla- he's been replaced by David, and God gives him this promise. He says, "When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you." who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. An eternal kingdom. An eternal kingdom was expected. It was hoped for. And Matthew, in the genealogy, he's telling us that it has now come through Jesus. Notice in verse 16, Jesus doesn't have the title of king. It says, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Matthew has neatly arranged, nice and clean, his genealogy to highlight the reality that Jesus, the Christ, has come. Now, that Christ, it's not his last name. As people often think, Jesus is his first name and Christ is his last name. No, Christ is a title means anointed one, or the Messiah, or the chosen one. And Matthew wants his readers to know, as well as us here this morning, that the promised king, the expectant king, has finally arrived. And really, I think this genealogy is just a testimony to God's faithfulness. God has been true to His Word. But have you ever had someone in your life who has not been true to their word? Someone who has promised you something but has underdelivered? Someone who has said, yes, I'll do that, but they don't follow through? Well, I am so thankful for my wife because she occasionally, graciously points this out in my life when I say that I will do something, but then I don't follow through with it. It rarely happens, let me tell you. But it does happen, and I'm so thankful for her because she reminds me, again graciously, of when I haven't followed through with something that I've said. And it could be something as simple as, hey, I'll be home by this time. Or it could be something more significant of, I've forgotten to pick up my kid from piano lessons. (laughs) I'll do it. This might not be on time. Faithful to my word. It's something that I strive for, but oftentimes I'm not faithful to my word. 
Maybe there's people in your life who have not been faithful to their word and it has hurt you deeply. I think oftentimes when things like this happen, we not only get disappointed, but then we become skeptical of that person. We're like, can I really trust you? And I think there's a big difference between forgiveness, but then building back trust when someone has hurt you, when somebody has not been true to their word. Well, ladies and gentlemen, God has been faithful. And we see that here in this genealogy. God has been faithful not just to Abraham and his many descendants, but his faithfulness extends to you and it extends to me. And I think not just this genealogy, but really the entire Bible is a call for us to respond to God's faithfulness by trusting in Him. Abram, amidst a barren wife, Sarai. David and all his failures, which we'll talk about here in a moment. And all the other ones mentioned here in this genealogy, God was faithful to His promise by bringing an expectant king. And He will be faithful to bring Him back to those who are His own. And He will be with us forever when He comes back. So I know some of you come in here this morning and you're weary, you're tired, it's been a long season, you're sick and tired of COVID and masks and vaccines. More than that, you're sick and tired of the divisiveness that has happened in our culture. Or maybe there's even particular circumstances in your life. Maybe you are struggling with infertility. Maybe you are struggling with betrayal of a friend or the loss of a loved one. I know many of you have this year because I'm your pastor and I walk with you through these things. Many of you have been struggling continually with the same besetting sins over and over again. Let me just encourage you this morning. The incarnation, Jesus is coming. It's a testimony that God has not done. The story is not finished. He's still writing it. We know the end of the story, that he will come back and set up his kingdom. And that's good news. But let us be reminded afresh and see here this Advent season that God is at work even here and now. This genealogy is such a testimony to that because people waited thousands of years. And for you and for me, when we are struggling, when we are going through our trials, we just want them to be over now, immediately. There's a section in this genealogy, folks, that there's 400 silent years where God did not speak. But we know, based on this genealogy, that God was at work. And He's at work here and now in our lives. And for those who have turned from their sin and believe in Jesus, He is at work in you. Christ has come. More than that, He died and He was raised. And then He sent His Spirit. The Apostle Paul talks about Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we look forward to the expectant King to come again. And that gives us hope. And that gives us hope. This is good news of great joy. And that leads me to our second point here this morning. As the expectant King has come, He's come by these unexpected means. And so, genealogies like the one that we have in our text here this morning, it follows patterns. We've seen it. We see this pattern of 14. And now, when we're reading the Bible, and we see something continually refrained, like the father of boom, the father of boom. But then when something is different in there, it should jump out to us. It should catch our attention. And Matthew does that here in his genealogy by including women. You see, typically genealogies in the Bible, they followed the line of men because men were the representatives and heads of their household, and they still are. But Matthew decides to include women here. So it begs the question, why? What's he telling us? Well, (laughs) the women that he includes is actually quite astonishing. He includes five of them here. He starts with Tamar, Rahab, Ruth. And he doesn't mention her by name, but Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah is here. And then Mary. And if you're familiar, again, with the stories of these women in the Old Testament, you're just kind of like, wait, what? These are included 
in the line of the Messiah, in the line of Jesus? Well, yeah, they're a little bit unexpected. We'll start with Tamar. Tamar, she, she was a sneaky one. <laughs> if you're familiar with uh, the Joseph narrative, Genesis 37 through 50, there's this weird story in Genesis 38 that's thrown in there, and you're just like, what? You're like, this is in the Bible? Long story short, in Genesis 38, you have Tamar, and it's this gal, and her husband dies. She really wants children, so she um, disguises herself as a prostitute, and then she goes and she sleeps with her father-in-law, Judah. Now, this is so strange, <laughs> because after she sleeps with him, she takes some of his stuff, and when we preach through this, Aaron um, gave an analogy. It was like his driver's license, his keys, and his wallet. It was like things that would definitely be known by only Judah. So she takes his stuff, and then Judah goes on, and then it becomes known that Tamar, she's pregnant. She's pregnant out of immorality, and when Judah finds out, he wants to put her to death. Well, sneaky Tamar, she says, the man upon whom I am pregnant with this child belongs this stuff. She shows him his stuff. <laughs> and Judah, do you remember what he said? He's just like, he's caught. <laughs> and he says, she is more righteous than I. <laughs> You're like, wait a minute, that situation is not righteous by any means. But when he gets caught in his adultery, and when he gets caught impregnating, this prostitute who ends up being his daughter-in-law, you're just like, what in the world is going on here? Why is this in the Bible? Well, it's to show that God will accomplish His purposes by any means He chooses to. And it doesn't matter how broken the situation, God will continue to accomplish His purpose. Amidst dysfunction, amidst brokenness, we see that in this next gal, Bathsheba. Again, she's not mentioned by name. Just mentioned the wife of Uriah. And if you're familiar with the story, I'm sure many of you are, that's kind of Matthew's point here. He doesn't mention her by name, but it's really the circumstance of what happened in this story. Well, David, he's in his palace. He's walking around on the balcony. And when kings were typically at war this time of year, David's in the comfort of his own palace. So he sees Bathsheba from across on another balcony and she's bathing and he tells his servants, bring her. I want her. And he sleeps with her, commits adultery with her, impregnates her. When all this is kind of found out, then he's like, uh-oh. Call her husband home from the battlefield who we find out Uriah is one of his most loyal soldiers. And he demonstrates his loyalty when David says, go down to your home. Be with your wife. Because he wants to cover this thing up. Uriah doesn't do it. He sleeps outside the palace. He will not go home to the comfort of his wife and bed to be with his wife. Because he wants to be with his soldiers. He's loyal to not only his fellow soldiers who are out on the battlefield, but he's loyal to his king, David. And David's like, all right, well, if that's the case, then he sends a secret message along with Uriah to the commanders when he goes back to the battlefields. They read it. And the instructions were to, when Uriah's in the front line of the battle, fellow soldiers are to fall back so that Uriah is killed. And that happens. Uriah is murdered. So we again see this broken, this dysfunctional situation of not only murder, but adultery, pregnancy out of wedlock. And you're like, all of this is in the line of the Messiah? And we also have Rahab. She's a prostitute. She's a Canaanite. Not included in the people of Israel. We have Ruth. She has some upstanding qualities about her, but she too is not in the nation of Israel. She does unite herself to it. But she's a Moabite. People who are despised by Israelites. 
And as I studied this passage this week, most of the commentators did highlight just the the eye-popping reality that women and these women are included in the genealogy. But we can't overlook the men that are included and their failures in this genealogy. I just mentioned David. His legacy is marred by this sin. Just by the mention of Uriah's name, we are to think, oh yeah, David, his sin. But also the kings who followed in his wake, they're not really worth writing home to. Solomon started out well, ended very poorly. Rehoboam, Ahaz, Manasseh, just these wicked, wicked men. Matthew doesn't pull any punches here, but he lets it rip. Why? Why is, what's he trying to communicate? What's he showing us by not only these women, but these men who are marked by their sin? Well, I'll tell you what he's not trying to do. He's not trying to create this nice, pretty picture of the Messiah and his great family that is on display I actually think it's kind of an apologetic for the New Testament. New Testament can be trusted because you wouldn't include stories like this if you're trying to make someone look good. What Matthew is doing is showing God's plan of redemption through these dysfunctional people. One commentator said it best when he noted that the family that Jesus comes from anticipates the family that He has come for. That's you and me. He says in Matthew 9, verse 13, For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I think there's two implications here. Two implications. The first, Matthew is showing us that when someone is united to Jesus, it is no longer their sin that defines them but rather it is their King who defines them. You see, Jesus is not like any other King that has ever come on the scene. And when you think of Jesus as a King, you might have these images of a throne and a kingdom and royal garments and lots of riches and lots of people in His kingdom. And there's a reality to that with Jesus being our King. But His kingdom is not physical. His kingdom is spiritual. You see, Jesus is the King of kings. And He has all the majesty that our hearts could muster up and desire. He is the one who not only brings us into His kingdom, but He provides for us. You see, This kingdom language, this kingdom idea, back in Jesus' day and even in the Old Testament, a king provided protection. A king provided provision. And that's what our king is for us. He provides the necessary food, water, shelter, protection from our enemies. But again, it's not like any king you could imagine. Jesus being the king of kings is also the bread of life. And He fulfills all of our longings and desires continually. He is also living water. And when we quench our thirst on Him, we will never be thirsty again. Jesus is the very One whom we run to as our shelter. And more than that, Jesus is our Advocate who defends us continually before the Father. When the adversary throws darts and tries to identify us by our sin. You see, Jesus is the King who we call our Savior. And I love this genealogy because it goes to show that God deals with actual people. With actual problems and dysfunction. People like you and people like me. We're not so clean and tidy and perfect as maybe you envision the Bible wants you to be. Oftentimes we don't get it. That when we come to Jesus, we think we have to clean ourselves up and we have to put on this face. No, Jesus has come to call the sinners to repentance. And that's all of us. When someone believes in Jesus, that He is not only the expectant King that has come into the world, we are no longer marked by our sin but we are marked by our King forever. Just like Tamar, 
just like Bathsheba, just like Ruth, Rahab, and just like David, we can be included in the line of Jesus forever. And this offer, as it's extended to us, we can receive it as we turn from our sin, as we believe in our great Savior, the one who died for us. More than that, the one who rose. And we can take great hope that it is no longer our sin that marks us, but our King. And when we come to faith in Him, we are brought into this beautiful new family, full of dysfunction, but this beautiful family called the church. Full of people that you wouldn't choose. That have stories that you wouldn't want. And that go through events that you don't desire. But that's just it. Because it's designed. The church is designed to make much of our King, Jesus. And to rely on Him. And to see how He is still at work in our lives. Before we come to faith in Him, as we come to faith in Him, and as we continue to walk with Him together. The other woman in our passage this morning, Mary, she's presented a little bit differently from all the other women in the genealogy. If you see in verse 16, it says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Matthew is telling us something incredible here. Joseph is the legal father of Jesus, of whom the royal line of Abraham and David would come through. But he would be born unlike anyone, not only in the genealogy, but anyone throughout human history. He would be born of a virgin. And not just a virgin, but an outcast, Mary. We're going to unpack Mary in the weeks to come in our Advent series but born from this virgin would be the Christ Jesus. And Matthew, our author, he's preparing us for something. He's preparing us for what he's going to expound in the next passage, which is kind of the story of when Mary is found to be pregnant. And Joseph is like, wait, what? I'm out of here. And an angel comes, says, don't worry, bro. She's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. She's pregnant by God Himself. Supernatural. It's a miracle. God is at work here. She will bear His Son. And you shall call His name Jesus. And He will save His people from His sin. This King was brought by unexpected means to save His people. And that's good news for us. That's good news for you and that's good news for me. Because some of these broken stories that we see here in the Bible are often our broken stories. And Jesus can redeem it. And so this Advent season, let us worship our King who's come by sinners, who's come by Gentiles, who's come by a virgin to accomplish His purposes, His sovereign, gracious purposes to save His people from their sins. And those people are now called to bring this message of this King to the nations. And that's my third and final point. Briefly here this morning. So I said that there were two implications to women being in the genealogy. I mentioned one to you. That they are no longer marked by their sin, but they're marked by their Savior, their King. The second implication of women being in the genealogy of Matthew is that it is God's plan to reach the nations through Jesus. That it was no longer all about this one nation brought from this one man, but rather it is in the inclusion of the Gentiles. Rahab, Ruth, Tamar, even Bathsheba who was married to a Hittite. These Gentiles. We saw it with Abraham. All the nations would be blessed through him. David is to have this eternal kingdom who said in Psalm 2, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. And with the explicit inclusion of Gentile women here in the opening verses of Matthew's Gospel, we really see that there's kind of a bookend to Matthew's Gospel. That he begins with the inclusion of Gentiles 
And he ends with the inclusion of Gentiles. We see this with the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Jesus said, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them. And he gives them this great promise, and lo, I am with you always until the end of the age. But Matthew wants us, his people, his followers, who are now united to this king, to go to the nations with this great news. And so, Matthew, again, who's writing to a bunch of Jews, some that believe in Jesus, and some who are just exploring Him, wanting to know who this Jesus is, he's telling them that the Messiah wasn't just to establish this physical kingdom. This Messiah was to establish a kingdom. Spiritually. That someday will be set up physically. But this kingdom would go forth through the proclamation of the Gospel from His people. And just like His parable of the mustard seed, where Jesus says there's this tiny seed, which is symbolic of the nation of Israel, small and insignificant, like Abraham, it would expand and grow into this massive tree. That's the kingdom of God. That's what the kingdom of God is like. It's expanding. As we, His servants are living in light of who He is and what He's done for us, worshiping Him, we are to live lives that are different in this world around us. Lives that are marked by generosity. Lives that are marked by service. Lives that are marked by including those who you would not typically include in your life. Lives that are marked by small sacrifices. Sacrifices that maybe nobody sees except for your king. But also lives that are marked by big sacrifices. And some that leave the comforts of our homes, leave the comforts of our country to go and bring this good news to the nations of who Jesus is and what He has done. I love stories of people going to the nations. I think of Zach and Kara, Zegan, who were just here with us. We just spent three months with these dear saints. For those of you who don't know Kara's story, Kara was a stud. She was a D1 athlete here at CSU, she was quite the engineer as well, and she left it all behind to go share the gospel with the people of the Czech Republic. She could have been successful in anything, but by God's grace, she's been successful in sharing the gospel among the Czech people. I'll never forget the first time I went to the Czech Republic and Kara picked us up at the train station. She, she walks right up to a Czech person and starts speaking to them in fluent Czech, and I'm just like, what in the world? <laughs> Like, that is so difficult. How do you do that? She's like, well, I've been here for almost 10 years. <sighs> Along the way, she met her husband, Zach, who was literally a Christian rock star. And they, as they were here this, this, this fall, they shared the story with me about their youth pastor at their church. And I think his name is Voita, and Voita came to faith through Kara sharing the gospel with her. I think... Voita was one of Kara's English students. And the Lord just got a hold of his heart, set it ablaze, the fact that he wanted to go into the ministry. And so he got trained up and he got raised up and now he's on staff with their church. Kara and Zach would always share the story about Voita with me that, man, I really wish that he was the main pastor. Because in the Czech Republic, you don't have these like solid pastors who are always standing on the Word of God. That's... That's kind of the exception, not the norm. But Voita was the exception. He believes, believes God. wants to see His Word proclaimed in the life of the Czech people. Well, when Zach and Kara were here this past fall, I shared the story that there's a succession plan going on and Voita is on track to becoming the leader of their church. Through this gal who wanted to go reach the Czech people, and built a relationship with them by sharing the English language, her common tongue. It's amazing. It's astonishing. Another story, Juliet Evans. Some of you might know her. She used to go to our church. Her brother spent a couple of tours here, Shane, 
Well, Shane invited Juliet to our church, and I'll never forget the first time she came to our church. So she goes into the women's bathroom over here, and my wife Michelle is, is in the bathroom, and typical Juliet, she just strikes up a conversation, and she's like, hey, this is my first time here. Can I sit next to you? And Michelle's like, yeah, sure, fine, that's great. And so we meet her, and, <laughs> and then after the service, Juliet turns to Michelle. She's like, hey, I really need somebody to disciple me. Can you disciple me? Michelle's like, I just met you. Like, I was washing my hands. So we, so we build a, a friendship and we build a relationship with Juliet. And she comes over to her house and she wants to dive into the book of Romans, like right off the deep end. Michelle's like, okay, here we go. Well, Juliet always had this desire to be a missionary. She knows that she, she knew that she needed to be trained up. And so she got connected to a local church. We raised her up. We sent her out. She went down to Denver for a season and got connected to a church down there. Well, now Julia is a missionary in Brazil. And she is being used by God to proclaim the good news of this king to the nations. So I love stories like this. And by God's grace, we've seen little glimmers of this here, not only within the crossing, but even our church network. We had David Morgan come this past summer who wants to be a missionary. He's leaving the comforts of America to go be a missionary. He's getting trained up in Mexico right now and probably, by God's grace, going to the Middle East. Which, if you know, that's not really a great place to be right now. But he doesn't care. He wants to make his life count like this. How about for you? How do you want to see the Gospel expanded into the nations? Jesus has come not just for us to come here on Sunday mornings. Not just for us to come and receive something and sing some songs and maybe give a little bit of money in the offering box. No, Jesus has come to reorient our entire lives. And honestly, the Crossing Church, many of you do this wonderfully as you want to make your life count wherever you are. We often have a saying here that we want to make disciples where we live and where we work and where we play. Wherever God brings us. We want to see the gospel come to bear. And many of us are doing that. And I love that. But I hope and I pray that some of us here in this room will want to go to the nations with this message of this great King who has come. That we will no longer be marked by our sin and the deserving punishment of God's wrath for that sin. But Jesus has taken it upon Himself. That's why He died on the cross. And people need to know this. And so my challenge for you, Crossing Church, is how can you influence the nations over the next 12 months? By the end of 2022, what can you do? Many of you give sacrificially. But what can you do beyond that? We have a great privilege and we have a great opportunity to make disciples in specifically a cross-cultural context. Our church network has connections in Nepal, Czech Republic, Gabon, Brazil, Ecuador. How can you be used by the Lord in a cross-cultural context? We are to be radically generous. We are to support our missionaries in prayer finances, and encouragement. But let us all also be willing to leave it behind to make disciples of all nations. So, that's my challenge. How can you impact the nations over the next 12 months? Let me just encourage you as you're maybe thinking about that right now, who can you share that with? Maybe your spouse, maybe a friend, maybe somebody in your life group. Maybe even life groups can begin to pray. There's lots of things that I can list off here and tell you on what to do, but I want the Holy Spirit to work and see what you come up with, church. I will equip you. I will help you along the way. But we are called to make disciples. I'm going to close with a story, international ministry. I once met this gal at a restaurant. She hailed from Japan. She began to tell me a little bit of her life story. And as she grew up in Japan, she met her, 
her husband in Japan who was over there because of World War II. Now, what's interesting about this story is that her husband was an American. He was actually from the Netherlands. Dutch descent. So they meet and they get married and they come to the States. And, but they weren't Christians at this time. They got invited to a Bible study. And I don't know why non-Christians do this, but they, they come to Bible study sometimes. It's the work of God. <laughs> Happened in my own life. Anyway, so this couple, Dutch and Japanese, they come to this Bible study. And by God's grace, one night at this Bible study, as these people are sharing their lives with them and sharing the gospel with them, they're in separate rooms, they're in separate studies. And God sets their hearts ablaze. They come to faith right there and then. And then when they get home that night, they're gonna, they say, you're not going to believe what happened. <laughs> They said, you're not going to believe what happened. And they share the story of God's grace. They believe in it. And they want to live their lives in light of it. Well, this couple, they go on to have a couple of kids. And their son, their son has three daughters. And by God's grace, I get to marry one of those daughters one day. And we see the faithfulness of God in the life of His people who want to bring the gospel to the nations has impacted a family tree. Not just physically, but spiritually. That's what Jesus does. And now, Michelle and I, we strive to raise our children in the ways of the Lord. As Michelle got to be baptized by her grandfather one day in a hot tub, it's amazing. The story of God's grace. God accomplishing His purposes. So ladies and gentlemen, God has brought an expectant king through unexpected means to reach the nations. And spoiler alert, God wants to use you as an unexpected means to bring the Gospel into the nations. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, I thank You for the great joy that this season brings. God, I thank You that You have not left us to ourselves, but You have left us with a people, Your church, and that we are no longer marked by our sin, but we are marked by our Savior. Lord, I pray and I ask that if there is someone here who comes in weary, who comes in hurting, would they see afresh the beauty of Jesus. Lord, if there is someone in here who has yet to come to know You, God, I ask just that You would set their heart ablaze. That they would see that they no longer are marked by something that has been done to them or something that they have done themselves. But they can be marked by You, Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray that You would use our church in a mighty way to bring the Gospel to the nations. Lord, would You stir up a passion within our life groups? Would You stir up passion within friends and families to see the Gospel impacted. And Lord, would we be a church that is marked not only by the Gospel, but radical generosity, joyful hope, and willing sacrifice to see the Gospel extended to the ends of the earth. Lord, we love You and we thank You and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.